Okay, we're fired up, and here we are. November the 23rd, uh, 2014, lecture discussion number 178 on the Book of Romans. And uh, Dave uh, let me know, and this is for the Internet folks, that uh, I have repeated numbers again. That's the second time that's happened in a few months, so there's getting to be a... a, a well, that's a repeat offense now. That's big problems for me. So this is 178. How many 176s did I have? 177s. Just just repeated a couple of them in there. Okay. Well, so it's uh, following along with me has become even more difficult now that I'm in my dotage. Okay. Believe it or not, we really have almost, and let me stress that word, we've almost unraveled enough from this uh, giant ball of string that we're in to begin to see the meanings of the three parables of Matthew 24. So we have those three parables, 24. And yes, now that I'm done with my mom's house, I get to finally get a haircut. 24, uh, it's been been a long time, 45 through 25, 30. Those are three parables there. And if you try to take one away from the other two, uh, Marie was telling me about a gentleman that uh, came to speak at, in front of another church that she attends, and uh, uh, he isolated the parable of the talents. Very, very problematic to do that. That gets you into all kinds of problems. And so I can't stress enough that we're that you put these three together. I obviously are beginning to add Jeremiah 13. I think that's appropriate. And then you'll be able to unravel what they always, what they all mean. And we're close, almost done with that. I know it, it never seems so, but it is so. And if I say it's so, it must be so. Anyway, we've been sorting through the abundance of all these symbols, the talents and all of those things that are in these three parables, as well as the two parables of Jeremiah 13. We're attempting to assign them to the correct placement and the correct intendment. Uh, to phrase that another way, I need to know what connects conti- contiguously or directly or immediately to, to what. What is side by side and, and what is here so that I can line them all up correctly. What does each individual part in these parables convey by itself? And then when I add them all together, what's the totality of it? And so that's the accumulation of the whole or the sum of the sums. Again, that probably makes sense only to me. I got that. I, I know. It is my diabolical plan, however, to uh, spread my eccentricities to you guys and make you think like me. And so far, no success. Okay. List makers are going to list. So here we are, right? And if you haven't heard the previous, how many sermons? 177? Uh, this might not mean so much to you, but uh, recognize that I'm essentially outlining these three parables in Matthew 24, 45 through 25, 30. The first parable in Matthew 24, 45 is the wise and faithful servant that feeds his household and is made ruler and contrasted with the evil who says, my master is delaying and so I can start killing people. So that's your first parable. And God comes back when the guy's not watching, cuts him in two. And he is assigned his portion 
with the hypocrites. So, let's... That's the drum set that made that noise. In case you were wondering, Terry, you can get rid of it. Okay. So, let's outline that a little bit. This will become important. Food, not poop. Food. And then B... So we start out with the food element involved in that, and then we have the one that beats his fellow servants. Beats, I should put his fellow for you. His, that's important to know that these are other servants. So ask yourself, who are the, why is food and feeding such an integral part? What is this beating his fellow servants all about? Who does that kind of stuff? And then he is cut in two when he is caught. But first he says, my master is delayed, is coming. So I'm going to use that as an opportunity to go out and destroy people. And so that delaying element is there. It, um, and we've talked about that at length so far. And then um, there's this element where he's not looking. So let me combine those. He's caught unaware. So understand that that is going on in the first parable. I'm making it too big. And those are from Matthew 24:45 through 51. So I better make it smaller over here. Now the second parable. Uh, I have five virgins and that are wise and five bridesmaids, virgins that are not wise or foolish, and they have lamps. Okay? And they have five of them take oil, and five of them deliberately take no oil at all. They've got a lamp, and they don't intend to ever have any oil in it. And then they all slumber and sleep. So I've got this slumbering... Um, and sleep, what is the difference? I ask that all the time. E, F, G, H. And then they, uh, uh, they ask to be given oil. They're not, that's denied to them because it's an evil request. And they go to buy. They went to buy, which is another act of wickedness. And when they came back, of course, the door was shut. So that is the basic outline. Now, I realize that I don't have everything on here, but if I did, it would get too complicated to follow today. Um, so pay attention to just almost all of it that I say as well as what I'm right. There is, a, there is an implied delay because they slumber and sleep, so let's put that delay right there. And there is a watch, therefore, a suddenness, don't be caught unaware again. So I have that happening in both Parables so far. Then the third is the uh, parable of the talents, and we've been asking for weeks now, and most of you have arrived at a conclusion that is correct. Congratulations. And we've asked, what is the talent? And it's given based on your ability. What is ability is the other question that we've been beating on. And these talents are given... It's very important to know that God gives them Christ. They belong to Christ. It is something that belongs to Christ. So start asking yourself, what belongs to Christ besides everything? But he's the possessor of all things. What belongs to Christ that doesn't belong to anyone else? That would be the right way to approach it. That would likely help you with what the talents are. 
And I've given you a lot of clues. One of the clues, for example, that I've given you is Philippians 2. So now, those talents are traded by two of the slaves, and they are hid in the ground. One is hid in the ground by one of the slaves. And then there's this banker's that we have to deal with in this one. He should have deposited it with the bankers. And then this take the talent from the third slave and give it to the one who had five talents. And and all along, and this is a long journey, long time, uh, the Lord came. And by the way, this banker, let me put, or this uh, uh, third slave is called something. He is called the unprofitable servant. That becomes very important and a, a very key piece of information. And that is Matthew uh, 25, 14 through 30. And hopefully when you see it laid out this way, what am I going to ask you to do? You had to do it in the third grade. So that's where we're all back to. It's kind of like your word search puzzle in your bulletin. But what I'm going to ask you to do is draw lines from that which correspond. Connect the three together. And hopefully when you see it like this, it becomes obvious as to what corresponds to what. And finally, we have Jeremiah 13. So let's put it down here. Uh, M-N-N-O-P-Q. I didn't have it. I have a linen sash in Jeremiah 13, right? You remember that? And no water. Can't touch that linen sash with water. And uh, I have to hide it in Babylon. And then... uh, Otherwise, it eventually, I'm sorry, it becomes ruined. And what does it actually say? Unprofitable. Absolutely right. So that should be pretty obvious, huh? And then uh, I have the pride. Did I do that right? Q. I got two S's. Uh, And I have the pride of Jerusalem as a key element in the first parable of Jeremiah 13. And and that's Jeremiah 13, 1 through 11. And finally, the last uh, parable that we're dealing with is in Jeremiah 13, 12 through 14. And I have vessels or jars, if you want. And I have wine. And then uh, uh, behold that is in there. Behold, God says, I will fill. And then there's a drunkardness. And, and then this, he will dash them one, one against the other. So that is Jeremiah 13, 12 through 14. And again, I hope you start... 
I hope you begin to start connecting. Most of you have done this. You know that this one right here, this this guy that is beating his fellow servants, something is said about him in that parable. Do you remember what it is? He will eat and drink with the drunkard. So he has this drunkard element as well with him. So you can immediately go drunk to drunk. That would be easy. You could easily go from unprofitable here in the sash parable to unprofitable in the unprofitable servant. And I'm hoping you're starting to do it while I'm talking about all of it and trying to get ahead of me. Can you agree that the food probably is the same as the oil? And that the oil and the food, not the same, but they have a connection. I should say that more distinctly. The food connects to the oil, and the oil connects to the talent. In the first parable, I have the emphasis on feeding. The second parable, I have the emphasis on taking oil. The third parable, I have the emphasis on what you do with your talents of gold, right? And we covered that a little bit last week, that the question becomes, is it is it the same as or is it additive? And I made the comment that it is not uh, food equals oil equals talents, but it is food plus oil plus talents equals something, just like it would be, for example, in the sevenfold cleansing provisions. The whole Bible is this way. You have the Day of Atonement plus the sin offering. Those are two cleansing provisions plus the trespass offering plus the ashes of the red heifer plus the cleansing of the leper in Leviticus and plus the lobber and plus the golden plate. All of those add together and you learn an aspect of Christ, a totality. Individually, there is something about Christ, but together they are a huge picture of Christ. And, And same thing with the seven feast days. You just don't... To take the Passover... By itself is very valuable to you, but you can't just leave it there. You have to add unleavened bread. You have to add uh, first fruits. You have to add uh, Shavuot or weeks. You have to add trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. Put all seven together and you get a huge picture. So one uh, one teaching of something of Christ individually, but then the, as a whole, the seven together become a great lesson about Christ. And I keep doing this, the five offerings have to be added together. You know, the peace offering, sin offering, trespass offering, right? Meal offering, burnt offering, add them together, but also look at them individually. You do it with the tabernacle of Moses. There's, I have seven aspects to it. I have the brazen altar. I have the lava. I have the showbread, the table of showbread. I have the veil. I have the lampstand. I have the ark. I have the altar of incense. Put them all together. Look at them individually. Genesis 15, I have those offerings, I mean, those sacrifices. I have the heifer cut in half, the ram cut in half, the birds that weren't. And that's just to name a few. But if I'm going to say what applies the most to this particular three parables, I'm going to tell you it is what the wise men of the court of David brought to the infant child. Because they knew that child was somebody. They knew that that child was God. They had that figured out. Daniel had taught them that God was going to come essentially and hide himself in a human baby. And they came and recognized that that was God. And what did they bring? Do you remember what they brought? They brought, it's Christmas, right? They they brought gold, they brought 
frankincense, and they brought myrrh. Myrrh is essentially embalming fluid. It's not a four, it's a Y. Myrrh is embalming fluid, essentially. Frankincense would be a sweet savor, a sacrificial savor. It's a ground, uh, beaten powder. And gold was pure gold, and it was also beaten gold. You will find that beaten aspect. Uh, the purpose of all of this purification technique is to find out if there's any impurities in it. But what does the gold speak of, by the way, in the frankincense, gold, and myrrh? Why did they bring him gold? They brought him something that reflected that there was a sacrificial death. And then they brought something that, that demonstrated that he was somebody. Yeah, he's God himself. That's what the gold signifies. Okay, that, that should help you almost immediately right here with the talents. That's where we pretty much left off last week. So all of that is in the, is the case in these parables. You not only have to figure out the parts, but you have to put the parts together. And the parts aren't necessarily the same. In fact, they're not the same. What they are is additives. Okay, back, back on task. Now, if I say what connects to cut in two? Cut in two is clearly a punishment, right? What is the corresponding punishment with the five virgins that didn't have any oil? Well, that would be... The door is shut. Okay, what would be the corresponding punishment to the unprofitable servant in the third parable? His talent is taken from him. So I began to see this pattern develop. How about, how about with Israel? I could come over here and Connect to the dash one to the other. Let me draw a better line than that. Do you see why it's going to be really messy? He beats his fellow servants. What is the same over here with the, uh, the virgins? He's a drunkard who beats his fellow servants. By the way, what does drunkenness mean to God? It doesn't mean the same as it means to you, I guarantee it. Over here, obviously, you could see this one. He hid his talents in the ground and he beat his fellow servants. Has got to be, there has to be a relationship between the two. Where's the relationship with the, with the bridesmaids? Well, it has to be, took no oil. So, Beat his fellow servants, took no oil, and hid, hid the talent in the ground. Those all have a relationship. So again, let me repeat from the beginning. If you try to separate out just the parable of the talents from the other two, you will not have any success. You might get close, but you won't fulfill what is being told to you in three parts that add together. And now, not everything is on the board, is, is, is obvious. And so you get to make your own lists, and um, you get to draw your own lines. And when I've done this in the past, people have told me to use different colors because it was easier to understand. And I said to them, that's not my plan. I never plan to make it easy to understand. That is up to you. The Internet folks don't even have a board. And trust me, they're going to write me and tell me. Where are the pictures of the board? 
Well, you can do this on your own. It's really not that hard. Again, the ruined unprofitable and, and the unprofitable servant becomes very important to you when you're trying to figure out what the talents are, as is the drunkards and the drunkenness. Those are the cleanest, easiest ones, and, and that's why I want to stress them again. Uh, now, we get to make some, un, some educated, well, maybe informed, perhaps, I guess, decisions. We get to start deciding what might fit as to what is obvious. What's this water from Jeremiah 1, 13, 1? Put a linen sash around you. Gird the linen sash. Last week I ended with what the water meant out of Ephesians. But don't let water come near it. Don't touch it with any kind of water. What, where does that fit with the others? Do we put it with the oil? Of Matthew 25, 3, because there's no oil and there's no water. Don't touch water with it. Don't use it. Don't get it anywhere near. No water and no oil. Is, is that appropriate? How about uh, the linen sash? Where do I put the linen sash? What does it connect to? It becomes unprofitable and it becomes ruined. So I see that unprofitable third servant again. And he is also ruined. He's revealed to be unprofitable. The lamps of Matthew 25, 1. I've got lamps. Where do, what do I put with the lamps? Are the lamps then the same as, say, the vessels? The jars from Jeremiah 13. Are they fulfilling the same place or are they two parts that have to go together? Uh, went to buy... Is went to buy the same as hid in the ground? Could I make that case? Is that the same as beat? Who are these bankers over here? God says to a man that, that looks at him in the face and declares him to be evil. Christ is talking to somebody who says that you're evil. And he says to him, you could have, if you thought that was true, you could have taken uh, your talent and given it to the bankers. So who are those bankers and what do they correspond to? How about the slumbered and the sleep? Do I see it anywhere else? The delay and the delay and the uh, delay seems to be off obvious. Okay, now, what we can do... Eventually, well, let me throw in one more thing, this pride of Jerusalem. This is the key to Jeremiah 13. God clearly says that Jerusalem is proud. And, and so what is this pride of Jerusalem? And what does Jerusalem mean, by the way? Do you remember that? I hope you do. Jehovah Jireh Salam. God provides peace. That's the same thing as God provides salvation. Because when God provides peace, who do you need to have peace with? You need to have peace with him, reconciled with him. You are not at peace with him. He provides that peace for you. That's the same as providing salvation. So Jehovah Jireh Salam. And he says that uh, Jerusalem has this tremendous pride. What's the obvious question? Yes, sir. Yeah, very good question. First, we have to, he asks, uh, for those on the internet, uh, Bill the Cow asks, uh, is taking the talent to the banker, is that a good thing or is that evil? Less evil, he said. 
Bill said. In other words, who are these bankers and, and uh, how big a problem are they? Uh, and that's an excellent question, and we have to solve the bankers. I think that uh, it'll become obvious here in a second, but maybe not. I'll try to. See if I answer it, Bill. Ask me later. What, though, is Jerusalem so proud of? They are really proud of something. What is it? Now I want you to notice what all the people in these parables say. In Jeremiah, they say this to God. They say it back to God. They say, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? That's what they say back to God. What they are essentially saying is, we know that every bottle will be filled with wine. What do they mean? What is the answer to that question? Do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? What's the answer? Obviously, the nation of Israel believes that they certainly know the answer. And they're convinced that the answer is what? You really got yes or no. They're convinced that the answer is yes. Well, what's the next question then? Are they right? What are the chances they're right? Probably very, very small. You have, so that's what they say. The, God, the first servant says, my master is delaying his coming, so I get to kill as many people as I get my hands on. Torture, enslave, torment as many people as I can. Because he's going to be late. I got time to do this damage. Who thinks like that? Who in the Bible, other than the guy in this parable, thinks that, oh, God is going to delay. That gives me a chance to kill as many Jews as I can. I helped you out there, didn't I? And so you begin to see the Antichrist element right off the bat. Anybody that preaches that the first servant is just some guy that doesn't deserves some sympathy, understand what he means when he said, God is delaying, I get to kill people. Same thing is true with this guy. He hides it in the ground, and then he goes to the face of God, face of Christ, stands right in front of him and says, Christ, you are evil. You're the source of evil. You are the And there is no solution to sin. There is no solution uh, at all. And so all will ultimately have to be pardoned. Who says that? That's right out of the lie of Satan. So I have both of those happening. The statements start to line up. What this man says here and what this man says here are exactly word for word what, the, what Satan says and what the Antichrist says. So, now I look at these five virgins. What should I expect them to say? Something good? The five foolish virgins, shall they say something good or shall they say something profoundly wicked? What do they say? Do you remember? They say, give us your oil, for our lamps are going out. We discussed last week that that last part is an outright lie. They never lit, they never lit their lamps. They never took any oil. So the first part's, give us your oil. 
And by the way, they never took any oil because they willfully and with premeditation chose not to take any oil, knowing full well what it would mean. They say to the other bridesmaids, give us your oil. Is that evil? Yes. And then they say, Lord, Lord, open to us. That's also evil. Critical that you understand that, and you you can understand it when you see that the evil in the first part. I'm going to God has delayed. I'm going to kill as many people as I can. Uh, again, I'll repeat it. God has delayed. I'm going to kill all the Jews I can. I'm going to kill all the Christians I can because I got how much time? He knows how much time he has, and he's going to kill as many as he can. Well, he may not know. Here I have. Give us your oil. Open the door. Here I have your evil, you're the source and the origin of sin. All of those are satanic. But these ones in the middle here, the five foolish bridesmaids, they demand that, that God open the door. And the boat, by the way, give us your oil and open the door are both demands and both are what? Both are rejected, right? As they should have been. So who are these five wicked bridesmaids? Who is this evil servant here? Who is the third that only got one talent that says, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man? Again, to to repeat that, that is the same thing as saying that God is evil and Christ immediately rejects it. Reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed, and I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. That I was afraid comes out of Genesis. That is the uh, confession of Adam. And it is used here by someone who is profoundly wicked, declaring God to be the source of sin. Notice, by the way, that somebody had to dig that talent up. Look, you can look, you have what is yours. Christ calls him wicked. That's important. And when Christ calls somebody lazy, that's not the same as your definition of lazy. We have to define lazy. We'll do that in the weeks to come. Now, we must, we should compare also now what Christ says in response to what is said to him. All of that is said to him. We know you're going to fill the bottles. Open the door. Give us your, open the door. And you're evil. That's what's said to him. And so we ought to look at what he says back. And find and connect all the compliments that are there. That which is clearly complementary in both what God says and what is said by the wicked to God's face. So Christ asks a question in Matthew 24:45. He asks this question. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? That's a very complicated question. Who is a faithful and wise servant? Servant will just take part of it. And when God asks a question, we should consider how many, how many know the answer? Does he ask a question knowing that everybody knows the answer? Let me ask you that. Very rarely. He asks a question because why? Very few people know the answer. So if you go, I know the answer, my advice to you is to slow down. So who is a wise and faithful servant. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? To be more servant, to me, uh, more correct. And when God asks a question, we should consider that very few know 
And all of these parables then do what? That's the first question that is asked before he starts the parable. So what do you expect would happen next? All three parables would then go about answering that question. He would answer that question in all three parables. Who, who is a faithful and wise servant? It's noteworthy uh, that in the first of the three, there is nothing recorded with respect to a dialogue or a one-on-one conversation between Christ and the, it just refers to him in a third person, if you will. He decides that Christ is going to be delayed and he uses that as a motivation to kill as many as he can. And why does he kill as many as he can? What does he hope to accomplish by killing as many as he can? Does that, the killing, and I'm not calling it beating anymore, notice how I've leaped, is the killing the same as what else? I'm going to say to you that the killing is the same as hiding in the ground. Does that make sense? Do you see how I did that? What is the result of hiding the talent in the ground? What happens if you hide the talent or the gold, if you wish? What happens if you hide the gold in the ground? What are you trying to accomplish when you hide the gold in the ground? You're trying to, yes, you're trying to stop uh, the truth of Christ. And what does the truth of Christ do? It brings life. And so if you're trying to stop the bringing of life, what are you trying to do? You're trying to bring death. Are you trying to kill what? As many people as you can. That's exactly what this guy is doing in the first parable. I would expect to find wicked people doing wicked things simultaneously in all three parables, right? That makes sense? What's happening here? Somebody is trying to kill somebody here. I have somebody trying to kill people here. I have somebody killing people here. I have somebody trying to kill people here. Who's the suspect? Have to be the five foolish virgins, right? Who are they trying to kill? Who did they try to kill? The five wise virgins. How did they try to kill them? Give us your oil. No, you're trying to kill me. Go buy oil. Everybody knew you couldn't buy oil. Again, the three all have this complementary aspect, all the while trying to answer the question, not trying, does answer the question, who is a wise and faithful servant? So, what does God say to them when they come to God? He says, uh, uh, to back up a second, we don't have that one-on-one dialogue. We just have a description of what the evil one does, And what wise and faithful does, the evil tortures and kills and has a drunkenness, a mental instability that occurs here. This drunkenness that he has. Uh, He has a mental incoherence. He becomes so evil, his rational capability is gone, disappears. God calls that a drunkenness. He has no awareness of Christ at all and he has no concern and no fear of Christ's return. He doesn't even know when it's going to occur. He isn't really concerned about it. He's concerned on being evil. And then we learn what after that one set aside. We get that description, and then it is played out for us here. Here we have evil people, and they say to God, the five foolish bridesmen, bridesmaids, demand that they be allowed into the wedding feast. They come to the door, and they say, open the door. 
That's a demand. Give us your oil. Open the door. Who, who thinks like that? They deliberately took no oil. They knew they were taking no oil. They absolutely planned to take no oil. And then they nonetheless demand that God open the shut door. By the way, where else do I find a shut door that God closes and doesn't open? That's right. It's clearly the Noah's Ark. And that door, that shut door that is closed from the inside by God, that is a picture of Christ. So they are demanding that Christ open the Noahic door. And God says to them what? The demand that you open the door, his response is, I do not know you. And the third slave, who was given the talent, uh, one talent of gold, accuses Christ of being evil, and Christ answers him with this. So you ought to have deposited my gold. I put my gold in there. So you, you see that says my money probably in your translation. So you ought to have deposited my gold with the bankers. Now that's very important again because it's Christ's gold. Nobody else has this gold but Christ. It belongs to him. So what is it that Christ has that belongs to him? Remember Philippians 2.6, the word robbery comes up. Christ says, or Paul says, that Christ did not consider it to be Robbery for him to be called who? God. It belongs to him. And obviously there is a relationship between I do not know you and these bankers that Bill brought up. I don't know you. The responses, I've got to put the responses to the the test, don't I, to see if they... I do not know you. You should have deposited my goldness. Does that help you? You should have deposited my goldness with the bankers. And also I can now go back. God says, fill every bottle. Behold, I will fill all the bottles. And the people respond, well, we know you're going to fill all the bottles. And God says, well, I'm going to fill the bottles, all right, but it's going to result in madness. And all your prophets are going to be mad. Your priests are going to be mad, insane. Your, your, your kings are going to be insane. All of you are going to be insane. Drunkenness has an insanity element to it, a madness. And so it should be obvious, I hope. Lord, Lord, open to us. And Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. And do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? And again, each one of those has a arrogance to them and a mocking element to them. We'll get into that as, uh, as we clean this all up next week. But they have to correspond. They have to be... You have to be able to take those, I believe, I submit at least, that you take those and you put them together and you figure out what they mean individually and what they mean as a whole. Again, uh, 
Do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? And Lord, Lord, open up or open to us. There, I'm saying that that is an equivalent, an equivalence. Not quite the same, but it's two ways of stating something that is equivalent. Demanding that the shut door be open, I want you to consider that for a moment. Why would I even have a door if it was possible to open it? If it's never shut. They're essentially saying, this door shouldn't be shut. Open the door. If the door is opened, irrespective of whether or not you have oil, why do I have a door? What's the purpose of the door? I have a door on the ark, remember? Who goes through it? Eight people. How many do not? Billions do not. Why do I have a door? Yeah, well, Marie, for those of you on the internet, says that it is an ending of sin. But he starts with a door. The point of the door is the, is what? What's the whole point of having a door? So, yes, it, the whole purpose of the door is it can be shut. So these people go up to a door and they demand that it be open irrespective of the fact that they have no oil, as if the oil does not matter. Who would demand that the door be open to them knowing fully that they intentionally came with no oil? What is the thought process? What are they saying philosophically? What are they saying theologically? Who also says that they are certain that every bottle will be filled with wine? I'm asking you, is the people that said, we know that every bottle is going to be filled with wine. We know that. And by the way, who was saying that? Jerusalem was saying that. We know every one of us is going to make it. Somebody else comes to a shut door and says, open the door. I don't need your oil. I'm a bridesmaid. Open the door. Over here, Every bottle filled with wine. And by the way, wine, um, we have to define wine. That's kind of a poem. Never mind. That's kind of a rhyme to go. Never mind. A couple of you got it, and I'm very happy. <coughs> Wine is a very interesting little symbol here because I have the John 2 aspect where I'm filling broken vessels, fractured vessels with wine, with water, and they, it becomes wine. And in order for that to happen, those fractured uh, vessels have to be repaired. So clearly water and wine are going to have to be connected here. And I hope that some of you were way ahead of me on that. And I know that you are. 
Isn't it apparent that the door being shut, that Christ's words, I do not know you, both of those are salvation-centric or salvation-centered. When he says the door is shut and I don't know you, that's the same thing. What is he saying to the people when he shuts the uh, noatic uh, ark door, if you will? When Christ says, I don't know you and the door's not going to open for you, what's your condition? What's your destiny? You are unsaved. Your name is not in the book of life. So both of those are salvation-centered. Therefore, Lord, Lord, open up to us is a demand to be what? To be granted salvation. Based on what? Whether you don't have any oil, and you demand that you be given salvation even though you have no oil. So, what is the oil? What's its relationship to the food? What's its relationship to the talents of gold? And and open the save us, Lord, Lord, save us. That again, who's thinking this way when they have no oil? And as is, do we not certainly know that all the bottles will be filled? Do you see that those are the same thing? Save us. You owe us salvation. Why would they, somebody say, they are owed salvation? Who, by the way, do you know says they're owed salvation? Even though they have no oil. I can think of hundreds and hundreds of billions of, I mean billions of people say that they are owed salvation. In fact, it's hard to find somebody that doesn't say he is owed salvation. If you find somebody who says that he is undeserving of salvation, what have you found? You found a Christian who really has salvation. The rest of them are convinced that they are owed it because they have earned it. How do I earn salvation today if I'm in the Middle East? I kill people. I earn salvation by killing people. How do I earn it in this this country? I do something that somebody says has earned it for me. Lord, Lord, open to us is a demand to be granted given salvation, as is the do we not certainly know that all bottles will be filled with wine. And both are classic modernistic universalism. They are saying that God will eventually save everyone, that no matter what, he's going to save everyone, that sin uh, is an evil and wickedness is ultimately insignificant. And so your oil and your food and your gold doesn't have any impact, they will say to you. There is no consequences. Again, they keep pounding away. There is no judgment. There's no accountability. The whole plan of salvation is invalid. That is modernism today. That is the modernistic theology that has permeated the church and it is everywhere. And the first thing that it does is say, the very foundation of it is that Christ is not God. And that there is therefore no incarnation. Because if Christ is not God, well then there is no incarnation, right? That's the basics, the fundamental point of modernism. They will tell you to your face that God adding humanity is logically absurd. Now, remember from Jeremiah 13. God is condemning Israel for their great pride. 
And I asked, what are they so proud of? He's going to end whatever it is they're proud of, he's ending it. What are they proud of? He's condemning them for it. Jeremiah 13, 9, thus says the Lord, In this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah, the great pride of Jerusalem. Again, what are they so proud of? It has got to be bad. Because he's, he's going to intervene. Can't let it continue. And we've got to deal with this question. They're certain of something. They're very proud of it. Does that help you? What would make them think that God would fill every single bottle no matter what? That nothing could interfere with every bottle being filled, the door being opened. By the way, does that help explain why they didn't take any oil? Five took oil and five didn't. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go and go through the door even though I have no oil. Because you're going to what? So I can connect the oil down here to the vessels. I can hide the gold and you're going to save me because you're the reason I'm evil in the first place. And therefore you're not able to judge me. You're disqualified. Yes, sir. That's right. You can't handle sin because you have you have constructed it in the first place, and therefore you're you're uh, unable to offer any accountability. So hopefully you start to put all of that together: the oil and the lamp, and the reason they took a lamp in the first place without any oil. They are making a theological statement, and I'm going to say to you: the oil for sure, must have a belief component because some took it and some didn't. So what some believe and some don't believe. So the oil has that belief aspect to it. And we know that we are saved by believing on Christ, Romans 4, 5. But to him who does not work but believes on Christ who justifies the ungodly, his faith, his belief is accounted for righteousness. You are saved by faith, by belief. And so if you don't have any belief, the door is not going to open. So you're going there intentionally without believing in the person of Christ, asking for Christ to open the door. Does that make any sense? Only to somebody that is insane. But that is the condition of what? The church today. I I think we will be stunned by how many people show up at the door believing it's going to open for them, and they have no belief. The one who believes in Christ is given salvation. And thus the key question is now on the table. What about Christ must be believed? And I'm going to tell you that that is the mystery of the talents, why it went last. As you know, I say all the time, I repeat it as much as I can, so that it is heard as much as it can be heard as far as I can do it. John 8:24. I think it's the first and foremost. Christ says as definitively without stuttering as he possibly can, therefore I say to you, 
that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. The gold, the gold of the gold, frankincense, myrrh, triad, the gold of the tabernacle of Moses, the gold that covers the wooden ark of the testimony, or the covenant if you're if you find that preferable, the gold that must be bought from Christ in Revelation 3.18. Let me read that to you really fast because I think that is very helpful. That is the vomit section of the Bible. Christ says this to the Laodiceans, the lukewarm, I warn you, to buy from me gold. Okay? What are they buying? What is it that he's telling them to get? Get as much gold from me as you can. What does the gold represent? I'm saying to you that it represents what it represents here. What it represents in the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What it, what it represents in the tabernacle. What it represents everywhere in the Bible. Um, gold is the deity of Christ. Possess the deity of Christ. He's saying that to the vomit of Laodicea. Where does the knowledge and the understanding of the personhood of the deity of the Godhood of Christ come from? Who does it belong to? There's only one person in all of human history who of it, of it is said that it is not robbery when he calls himself God. He's saying to, to the vomit of Laodicea that the riches that they think they have are actually worthless, their garments are actually filthy, that they are miserable, they're blind, they're wretched, they're naked, they're poor. But, but what? They're certain what? They say it. They say it. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. But they say, they have no gold. They have no belief in the Godhood of Jesus Christ all the while. And then they say that they don't need it. We don't need that. We're going to be saved even though we have no deity of Christ. In fact, it's a really, it's one of the great ironies in Scripture. They're saying they have need of nothing when they have Nothing. It's amazing. It is drunkenness. It is the same as we know we're going to be saved. It is the same as open up the door. It is the same as you're evil and therefore you can't judge me. A blind, oblivious condition that gets worse and worse and worse descends into insanity. And they are convinced that Christ is not God. We don't need your... We don't need to believe your God. That's classic, again, modernism. The percentage of churches that teach modernistic philosophy or modernistic uh, theology, I would say is well over 70% in this country already. How does somebody get to this place? Here's a really question that I've always had. Why do they want to be in this place? Why do you want to believe this? How does it benefit you? And what is this great pride 
that he says, no, can take it out of you. Next week, that's what we'll do as the musicians come forward. I hope that helped you, for those of you who say I never answer anything ever. I hope that helped. Next week, I'll answer what I didn't answer, which is a lot.